Hello and welcome to the Thinking LSAT podcast in San Francisco. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Washington, D.C. is Ben Olson. Ben, how are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty good, although I tell you, um, I should have stayed in California because it is awful here. It's 99 degrees today, or it was. <laughs> that was the high, I guess. And um, I, I feel like there's uh, permafrost or something under the land here that just seeps up and it's just steam coming out of the ground so it's constantly wet it doesn't even matter you just stand outside and you're like okay i'm going back in um yeah but i'm inside right now so that's good (laughs) well i hate to hate to break it to you but uh san francisco today is 75 and i actually turned on the heater the heater is on in my apartment (laughs) right now (laughs) because it's a little bit chilly (laughs) <laughs> well, it was just, it was nice. It was, and it was nice to meet you and come out. So. Yeah, it was great. It was uh, really cool to have you here. Um, how was uh, Santa Cruz? Did anybody actually get in the water? Oh, yeah, they did. Uh, they they kind of tiptoed out, and then Jed, who was the younger one who was there, a uh, the wave came and, like, totally covered him, and he was crying. But then, <laughs> so we were like, oh, okay, I guess this is over. But then, like, two minutes later, he was running back out there. And uh, all covered in sand, so that was pretty fun. And it was also funny too when we were leaving. Um, my, you know, my dad picked us up at your place, and he goes, "Oh, so who's that guy?" And I was like, "Well, that's Nathan. He he does LSAT in San Francisco as well." And he's like, "Oh, that's cool." And I said, "And you know, I don't know how it came up, but he's like, oh, what what else does he do?'" And I said, "Well, he plays video games." And he goes, "Oh, oh, really? I should have talked to him about Skyrim." And I'm like, "I don't even know what that is." Wow, like, what really? Like, I, I guess he, he knows. Maybe you guys could hang out more than than, than we could. I, don't, I have no idea. But is that even like a, a game you like, or is that? I know the makers of Skyrim is Bethesda. You know the makers? Yeah. Oh. Well, no, I don't know. <laughs> no, I know who they. I know who they are. But Skyrim is a very big game by the makers of the Fallout series, and I really love Fallout Three. So, okay. um, yeah, I, I could have talked to him a little bit about Skyrim. That one's more like dragons and knights and shields and swords and stuff, which I don't like as much. I like uh, guns, shooting things. Okay, so I'll tell him that the Fallout is cooler. <laughs> cool. So today on the show, uh, we had an interview with Larkin Robson of Brooklyn, New York. We're going to get to that interview in a second. But um, before we get there, I have a little bit of business I want to take care of. My email address, if you want to get in touch with me, is nathan at foxlsat.com. Uh, you can also just check out my website at foxlsat.com. But I'd love to hear what you think of the show, uh, any questions you might have. You can also drop the uh, any contact. To, um, any questions you might have or comments, you can drop that in our website, which is thinkinglsat.com. Uh, ben, how do people get in touch with you? Yeah, if you have any complaints about what Nathan says, just feel free to email me at <laughs> ben at strategyprep.com, um, and then I'll try to tell him you know, what you thought. So. So today on the show, we talked about, uh, we had a strategy segment where we talked a little bit about whether students should take the September LSAT or the December LSAT, if they're getting ready for this fall. Um, what else did we talk about, Ben? Uh, social justice just came to mind, but that's not specifically what we were talking about. That was a side note. Yeah, so but I mean, we did spend important. a little bit of time on the three of us talking about whether what we do is actually good for the world, which uh, I think is an interesting topic that we'll probably get into a little bit deeper on a future show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Oh, that, and that that kind of came up, I think, because we were talking about uh, the the different, uh, like, what you should do to study. Should you uh, just jump in yourself, or you know, try to seek out advice somewhere? Yeah, Larkin offered some tips for people who are going to try to get ready for the September LSAT. We also talked about. Um, scholarships and how scholarships are negotiable, which mm-hmm. is something that I think a lot of students are probably not aware of. Um, Larkin talked about why he's not a lawyer and why going to law school was maybe not the best idea for him. So that makes <laughs> at least me and Larkin, and I don't know, are you committed to deciding whether going to law school was a good idea for you or not? Oh, no, no, no. It was, well, I'm glad I went. Um, I, and I don't know why. Maybe it's because I've I've heard that psychologically, whenever you make a decision, you're more prone to justify that decision. Yeah. So, um, and it costs a lot of money. So thinking that it was a mistake is maybe tough. But but in any case, um, I mean, I'm glad I learned what I learned in law school. Uh, but it, I guess if I had done it again and known that I was not at all interested in practicing, then I probably wouldn't have gone. Um, I don't know. It's kind of nice to have a JD, though. Like, throw it around, I guess. <laughs> I, I, maybe. I don't know. I actually don't talk to anybody and try to impress them with what I do anyway, so maybe that's not even worth that. But I'm yeah. trying to justify the cost, maybe, in my head. So Yeah, that effect never happened to me. I, I about halfway through law school, was certain that uh, I was wasting my time and my money. And um, So wait, why did you finish, then? Because... I thought, well, it's only half the time and half the money from this point forward to go ahead and finish out, and maybe I can make the best of it and enjoy it a little bit more. Uh, I think, as that as it turned out, that that wasn't the case. But okay. it's just impo- it's impossible to really predict it. I think when you're mm-hmm. halfway through. Mm-hmm. So, with that, um, I guess we should go get Larkin. Sound good? Yeah. Okay. Hey, Larkin, um, I haven't talked to you since the June 2014 LSAT. I wanted to start with uh, asking you if you have any stories. How'd it go for your students? Did you hear anything uh, interesting about this last test? Hey, Nate. Uh, it's good to talk to you. Um, you know, I think the thing that was uh, really kind of interesting about this last test uh, was the games. I, you know, it's kind of too soon to to say exactly what happened because uh, none of us have seen the test ostensibly. Um, uh, but I've heard that the last game was kind of crazy. Um, and I think uh, that is actually something that a lot of people kind of struggle to deal with. Um, and I've, I feel like I've seen this happen more often on modern tests, is that they have one game that is kind of a lot more difficult than the others. You know, so I kind of feel like that is something that, you know, a lot of students of, of mine have kind of seen. Um, has that kind of been your guys' experience as well? Or? Well, we, we chatted a little bit last time about the difficulty of that last game, but yeah, neither Ben nor uh, I ha- okay. has seen the test, so we, right. don't, we don't really know um, what's up. I, I, I did hear a lot of chirping. Yeah, no, same here. Um, you know, yeah, I, I mean... I do think that, that there are kind of possibly ways to um, prepare for that kind of a thing. Um, kind of a, a game that is very, very weird and unexpected. 
I find um, this surprising that you're going to offer a tip for how to prepare for the un, unexpected. Um, so yeah, this is great. So I kind of think that the way, or rather one of the ways to study for the games um, is to focus largely on the more modern games. The, basically the grouping and linear and kind of derivatives of those two, right? Um, you know, learn methods for how to do those two, really kind of focus on those, right? Yeah. Of course, what this is leaving out is methods of how to do the very old games, right? Kind of the, the games that um, tended to show up uh, on prep test one to about, you know, 25 or 30, right? You know, things like circular matching and other games that you look at and it's just like, what is this? Exactly what's going on, right? Um, and so I think what you can actually kind of do is learn methods to do these newer games, have a decent way to do them, and then without kind of knowing how to, go back and do those old games, right? Because what it will do is give you practice with the doing games where you look at them and you're just like, wait, what? What is going on here? I don't know what to do here. Um, and it just gives you practice kind of thinking on your feet, right? So, it, you know, I mean, from what I've heard, the, the game in um, June not only was kind of new, but was also incredibly difficult. Um, there's not really that much I can say about a game which is both new and very difficult, but at least kind of the newness, the novelty of it is something that, that I think that people can actually kind of work on. Um, but this also, you know, takes a lot of planning. It takes kind of starting out with um, doing all of the, the kind of more modern games first and then going back. So you kind of have to plan it in advance. I think it's an interesting point. I mean, it sounds like basically what you're saying is it was unexpected to you, uh, student, because you didn't do enough games, basically. Well, so not really, because the, the, the novelty of something can always be new. I mean, this is something that the test is always kind of doing, right, is changing in these small and subtle ways. And so people are constantly focused or kind of forced to deal with something that's new on the test, right? Um, and so the idea is that rather than uh, kind of say, oh, well, the test is utterly predictable. Here are just the, all of the different types that you absolutely need to learn. It's that, okay, have some practice doing things where you feel like you have a good handle on the test already, but they are games where you have to think on your feet, where the novelty issue really is kind of a thing. So maybe, maybe I, I misstated it, but um, it sounds then, like, maybe I can rephrase. Um, Maybe what students need to do is not focus so much on scripted types of games and focus instead more on mixed sections of real games where you have to improvise. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's kind of generally a, a pretty good tactic. Um, you know, I mean, you kind of need to learn the, the base, um, you know, forms of the games first. But once you have that down to a decent degree, then you definitely need to, to learn how to improvise. Because they're always going to be thinking up new things to, to throw into the test. You know? And there is no kind of guarantee as far as, as what's actually going to be on it. I, I can't agree more with that. Ben, what do you think? Uh, no, it sounds good. I, I would 
just add to that, and I, I, I don't know if um, this is something you recommend, but something I uh, recommend all the time is when students are studying what you might think of as the more basic games, the ordering games or the, the grouping games, the things that you're most you're certainly going to see in some of the games on, on whatever test you take, um, is to really master those by doing them and then repeating a game until you can get it down to about five minutes. And the reason I would say that is that um, a lot of times people, I think, practice and they get good at these sort of common games and they may be able to do them in eight or nine minutes, which is about the amount of time you have per game on average. But the reality is that you need to do those games faster if they're easier so that you have a couple extra minutes, hopefully three or four, if you can, for the last two games and for like a, a very hard game. And one thing you mentioned earlier, Larkin, was you said that you've seen these sort of weird games prop, crop up on the more modern tests. And I agree, I'm yeah. thinking of like tests, I think it's 68, where the zones game comes at the end. Yeah, and there's I the feel Zones game, there's the, um, the voicemail and website game, which is a yeah. little bit weird, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but, but yeah, definitely. I, I feel like in, if for people who had a couple extra minutes and were able to like just slow down and say, okay, this is strange, it's worded weirdly, but um, I don't necessarily have to rush, rush, rush because I went super fast through the easier ones that came before it. And I think it actually is in Test 68 where the first two games are, were very easy. I'm try, I can't remember if I'm mixing that up with 69, but if you had just gone through those at a normal pace, then you'd have the average amount of time for the last two games, which would actually not be enough time. So you'd really want to go through those super fast. So I think, so what I like to recommend to people is really you want to become super good at just the basic games and not just, oh, I can do this in eight minutes. I mean, absolutely. I completely agree. You know, I think that the the whole, oh, well, it's kind of an average time that you're supposed to spend on each game is actually kind of misleading. Um, It is technically true. It is the average but people then kind of think, oh, well, that's what I'm supposed to spend on each game. And it's yeah. absolutely not. Um, you know, there, you have to be able to get through some games faster. Um, and I think you can kind of extend that to the entire test, actually. Um, you know, logical reasoning, you know, obviously there's kind of a, a, a general trend of as you go through, the questions get somewhat more difficult. If you're kind of thinking, oh, well, I'm going to spend the same amount of time on every question, uh, you're not going to be able to uh, finish those last 15 questions. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so absolutely, you kind of need to um, do the easier things faster. You know, and I think kind of one thing that you said, uh, Ben, is, is definitely spot on, that you need to really kind of focus on everything, right? Um, people tend to just say, oh, well, I struggle with this particular thing. I have trouble with this particular thing. Therefore, that's the only thing that I'm going to focus on. Right, and that is mm-hmm. terrible. You know, you have to be doing everything right um, because not only do yes, you want to get the those things right, you want to get them done quicker, et cetera, et cetera, but you want to also be able to get the things that you already know and be able to get them more efficiently and get them done uh, quicker. So, yeah. I think that's true throughout the entire test, really. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, the eight minutes and 45 seconds per game 
thing is just completely wrong. If that's how you're doing it, you know, you're, you're not making it through the section. And yeah. yeah, logical reasoning, same thing. I mean, you need to be the master of the easy stuff so that you have time to grind through the harder stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, Larkin, can you just uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, your business, etc.? Uh, yeah, so I am the um, owner and founder and really only member um, <laughs> of 180 Degrees LSAT. Um, a, uh, you know, I teach the LSAT in New York City. Um, for the most part, I do um, only one-on-one, um, which I think is kind of different from both of you guys. Um, you know, I've been teaching um, for oh, almost nine years, actually. Um, and, you know, I, my background, um, or rather kind of what I like about what I do, um, is in part related to the test as kind of a, uh, a critical thinking exercise, but a lot of it is, is actually just that I really like teaching. Um, you know, and if I wasn't doing this, I would probably be assuming that I could in this kind of awful, awful market would be a philosophy press professor. Um, you know, uh, or teaching formal logic. Um, you know, so yeah. That's really interesting. You you would you would like to so you would like to teach sort of philosophy one hundred and one or the the basics of. Well, philosophy. no, a- absolutely not. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I would I, no. Well, because philosophy one hundred and one and one hundred and one is all the kids who are taking it uh, just to kind of get it done with. I see. Um, the higher the higher level philosophy courses are the ones where you really kind of delve into crazy issues and really analyze the hell out of things. Um, you know, <laughs> kind of like what the LSAT is doing. Um, you know, kind of really, really analyze these concepts, really, really analyze these ideas, um, you know, and, and kind of look at it on a pretty deep level. Um, you know, whereas Philosophy 101 is always like, oh, well, these, all these kind of dead guys said all of these things and you need to memorize it. I think we're going to go um, just uh, rapid-fire questions on you, Larkin. So um, just tell yeah, everybody, where did you go to law school? When did you graduate? Why aren't you practicing? Or right. are you practicing law to some degree? All right. So um, I went to NYU Law. Um, I graduated um, in 2010. Um, I am an attorney, uh, technically. Um, I am not practicing law. Um, I kind of went to law school, you know, completed it, took the bar, passed it, et cetera, et cetera, and decided that I didn't really want to be a lawyer. Um, I went to law school for all the wrong reasons. Um, And if you're listening to this and thinking of going to law school, uh, go to law school if you have a passion for it. Um, If you are going because you did really well in the LSAT uh, or because... You are a philosophy major and have no idea what else you're going to do, um, you know, possibly choose something else. Um, you know, so it's, it's the, kind of the theory of the law, um, the ideas behind the law I find very interesting and very stimulating. The kind of day-to-day practice I find significantly less fascinating and, and stimulating. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I had... I had Kind of throughout law school, I had uh, taught the LSAT on the side. And then when I graduated, I was kind of forced with this choice of 
well, am I going to try and kind of do this for real? Um, or am I going to, you know, this kind of teaching the LSAT, which I really enjoy, um, or am I going to go into this profession, which I don't enjoy? Um, and, you know, shockingly, uh, I decided to do the thing that I actually do enjoy. So, I, I mean, I think largely it is, I like the test, and I think the test is really, really good at what it does, but um, largely it's because I'm teaching something. Um, that's part of it. I'm also teaching something that I think that I actually do consider meaningful because I do not think the test is testing something stupid. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm living in New York City. Uh, you know, the amount of money you can make for teaching the SAT in New York City is insane. But I don't teach that because it's a stupid test. Um, and I don't think the LSAT is. I think the LSAT is kind of good at what it's doing. I think the listeners would probably like to know more about that. Um, wh why do you like it? What, what, why is the LSAT good at what it's doing? So, I think that one thing that college is really trying to teach, or rather should be trying to teach people, oftentimes it is, but not always, is critical thinking skills, right? That is to say, how to take an argument or some information or, you know, kind of uh, some idea and analyze the hell out of it. Figure out what's worthy about it, figure out what's kind of logical, illogical, you know, what's reasonable, what makes sense, et cetera, et cetera, right? The LSAT is actually incredibly good at testing that, right? Now, there are parts of it, uh, you know, the logical parts of it, right, um, that you can be very good at that and not have automatically, right? That is to say, you're gonna need to be taught, even if you're very good at critical thinking, you may not be able to do the formal logic just because you kind of haven't been taught it, right? But for those style of people, generally they can be taught it, right? And without that much time. If it is the case, and I've had some students like this, and they're crazy, crazy hard to teach, but that essentially they don't have critical thinking skills, not because, it, you know, they're just or are, you know, don't have the ability or, or natural skill or whatever, but merely because they went to a school that did not teach them these things at all, they really, really struggle with the test. And so I kind of see the test as not only an extension of uh, college, but when I am teaching and the way that I teach, it is actually, uh, I'm kind of trying to build on the skills that college is designed to teach. Um, and so, uh, to a degree, I like it, essentially, because I kind of feel like I'm doing, I'm teaching something that um, college is supposed to teach people. Um, and some colleges, too, and they do a really good job at it. And some colleges don't, and I kind of have to, you know, fill them in the cracks of it. But... Just for uh, contrast, I wonder if you have an example of where the LSAT doesn't do a good job. Um, yes. I don't quite know how you would get around this, but for the purposes of the test, you're not allowed to bring in outside information as necessarily true, right? However, having a frame of reference for what they're talking about in a particular question is oftentimes very helpful. One of the problems is that a lot of the frame of references for the test are written by a very specific set of people. 
And I think that that can cause problems from a diversity standpoint. I don't know if you guys remember it, but there's this question which is essentially, um, I'm paraphrasing it, so I'm kind of going to screw it up, but someone is um, in a parking space and they're going to pull out, um, you know, and if, they're, if nobody is waiting, it takes them 10 seconds. If somebody is waiting and, um, and they don't honk, it takes them 15 seconds. And if somebody is waiting and they honk, it takes them 20 seconds, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. You know, the answer to that is that, well, they feel nervous, right? That, you know, it's a weekend or something, whatever, you know, essentially, right, it's that they feel nervous, right? A, a lot of my students have a hell of a time with that question. Why? I live in New York City. Nobody drives. <laughs> For me, that question is totally obvious because I do drive and I learn to drive. And that is my reaction. You know, that is, that seems totally natural to me. But a lot of my students who want a lot of other questions just really, really nail it, really, really struggle with that question. And that's something that's always been kind of very interesting to me. And I don't know really whether there is a way of doing that in a in kind of narrowing the focus in, in such a way where it's less problematic. Um, but I do think that, that that is something that they do, which is kind of, iffy, you know, which I think is perhaps one explanation why you see um, such kind of different averages uh, for some different kind of demographic groups. But so, so that would probably be kind of my main criticism of it. But go ahead. Oh, well, I was just thinking, going back to what you were saying earlier, how you, you think the test does a, a very good job. I, I wonder if I, I, a lot of times I get students who will say something like, oh, okay, this is the definition uh, that you're saying to me I need to have for the word like only if or some other word on the test or most or generally or whatever. And I'll say, yeah, that's the definition that you need to, to know for that word. And they'll say, okay, I see that, I, I realize that in real life this is not the right definition, but I'll remember it for the test. And, and I'm always thinking to myself, no, no, no. That's And I say to them, that's actually the definition that's, true in the real world, you've just kind of been sloppy with that definition in how you use it and so forth. Um, and so, do you get that a lot? Do you agree that the test is actually teaching us stuff about English and so forth that's accurate and that we shouldn't discount this stuff as just something I have to learn for the test? Um, absolutely, with kind of one caveat. I actually, I think that it is accurate because the test, kind of like law, is trying to do something very specific, right? You know, if you have a contract or if there's a statute, you know, yeah, you, it has to be super, super precise, right? And mm -hmm. so we have all of these words which we treat as being these kind of vague things, right? Or rather, actually, they are vague, but we treat them as not vague, right? Um, you know, like some, right? It's kind mm -hmm. of, it, essentially, I could say some dogs are canines right? That mm -hmm. is a true statement. But it's, people think of it as false because they question my motives, right? They think, well, why would you say that? Because what you're, the implication of that is false. Mm -hmm. But when we're dealing with the law, the implication of things kind of doesn't matter that much. 
really what it's supposed to be is exactly the word that is written there. And at the very least, you need to understand it, right? Even if the implication does matter, you need to realize that it is in fact an implication, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I think that the, what the test is doing um, and kind of learning the way that the test wants one to think absolutely matters. I don't necessarily think it's the kind of thing that people should be doing in their day-to-day lives because there's actually a reason why we don't have that kind of crazy standard, right? And really it's because, well, I'm not going to take the time, nor is anybody, to speak that precisely because I have better things to do, right? Um, Because, you know, in any kind of conversation that I'm going to have with someone, right, Mm -hmm. we're not going to be that precise. And we're kind of going to be charitable with each other because of that, right? Oh, I think you can be, but I think that they often think that that definition is, like, not true or something, but I think it it actually is, and having a clear understanding of those words is, 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 I think is based in reality. Like, in fact, if you look up a lot of the words, it's, it, it it's is consistent reality. with it, the, the definition. So, no, I, I mean, I agree. I don't think you should worry about it. A, I, I agree with you. I do think that it is reality, right? Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, and this kind of goes back to the, I think that when you're learning the test and kind of learning these things for the test, um, it is actually something that's really useful, right? This isn't just the arbitrary kind of crap that you have to learn for the test and then it's kind of useless and has no meaning. It actually really does have a meaning, right? It really mm-hmm. does kind of have a sense behind it. And, it, you know, if you kind of know about formal logic, if you take a kind of formal logic class, et cetera, et cetera, or if you've taken a lot of philosophy classes, these kind of concepts absolutely come up, right? And are absolutely kind of things that, that are dealt with. And in law school, it's kind of the same thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, our strategy topic for today. It's June 18th, and uh, I think all three of us have been hearing from students who are interested in taking the LSAT, and they're not sure whether they should take the test in September or take it in December. Um, I have s- some fairly strong feelings about this, but uh, maybe I'll let you guys start. I don't know. Ben, you want to take a crack at it? Sure. Yeah, well, I guess in general I would say if you have the choice, I would take it in September so that you can start working on your applications earlier. This is all assuming that you want to go to law school in a year from now um, or start law school in a year from now. Uh, Plus, Setting a goal for September, even if you end up not reaching it, is going to motivate you to get going and to get working on reaching that score. And if you do need more time, then you can postpone it and take it in December. Whereas if you start shooting for December, I think you're going to start studying later, not as quickly, not as fast. And you would be, I hope, not be in an awful position of trying to say, oh, now I need to take it in February, which a lot of schools don't accept. And even if they did, it's so late in the game, they're not going to take your application as seriously. And I think that's probably changed a little bit recently since there's been a drop in applicants, but I would still much rather take it earlier if I could. So, Yeah, Larkin, what do you think? I mean, not to repeat you, but uh, yeah, basically what you said. Um, you know, I, I kind of tend to tell people, um, take the test, or rather aim for the test that is going to be soonest, right? So at this point, it would be 
aim for September, right? If you mm-hmm. aim for it, and for whatever reason, you know, something happens, or you're not ready, or whatever, you know, and you need to postpone it, then postpone it, right? But you always want to aim for the test that is closest, assuming it's somewhat realistic. <clears throat> you know, like two weeks ago, if you start studying, don't start aiming for the June. You know, uh, but kind of given right now, um, most people would absolutely have enough time to study for the September, and so that's the thing that they should aim for, right? Um, mm-hmm. And absolutely, you're right that you know schools are going to give you a little bit of a bump um, the earlier you apply, right? So you know, and also, I, all of these things are kind of changing and up in the air, you know, because schools are because of the decline of applicants, but um, it is also the case that for most schools, if you want to apply early decision, uh, you can't take the December LSAT. Um, you know, so uh, my, my views coincide pretty strongly with yours. Um, <laughs> and Nate, do you have kind of totally uh, contrary views? or No, I agree with everything you've said so far. Um, I do think that if somebody started now and they were diligent, they would have plenty of time to get themselves prepared for the September LSAT. Um, I think Ben's right that shooting for that test might uh, kick you in the ass a little bit and get you moving on your preparation earlier. When If, if you have just some vague idea that you're going to take it this fall, uh, I think human nature would end up with most people taking the test in December instead of September, which like you say, means that you can't apply in the very first earliest wave of applications, um, which means maybe you don't quite get into a school that you would have gotten into otherwise, or you don't quite get a scholarship offer that you might have gotten otherwise. I still tend to see the best offers going to students who apply at the very beginning of the cycle. I think that if you apply at the very beginning, you're sending the signal that you are on top of your shit. And um, so the kind of, the really like knock it out of the park offers that I saw this cycle all tended to come from people who applied really early. So I would shoot for the September test for that reason. The other thing, which I don't think you guys did mention, or maybe you did and I I just missed it, but um, if you take the September test and you don't do your best, then you've got a chance at retaking in December which uh, law schools really probably only care about your highest score. Yeah, so, absolutely. And we agree with that, right? I mean, that's, that's what, what, what percentage of schools are we saying? I, I would think high, really only care about your highest score. Honestly, I would say pretty much everywhere. Um, it, you know, even kind of Yale, Harvard, Stanford. Um, I've had several students who have taken it more than once who have gotten into T3 schools. Um, you know, so I really kind of think that they, they don't care. Um, you know, the other thing kind of, I think that applying super early, yeah, kind of shows that you um, are, are kind of have everything together, et cetera, et cetera. You know, but the other thing is that, look, it, schools are essentially a business, right? And a lot of the candidates that they're choosing from aren't massively different, you know? And they can't give 90,000 scholarships to everyone, you know? And if you and your kind of numbers twin apply and your numbers twin applied three weeks before you, 
they're going to get that spot. They're going to get that money, right? Um, you know, it doesn't mean you won't get anything, but, you know, it's rolling admissions. And, you know, they're not just kind of going to offer it to everybody. Um, you know, maybe if the your numbers twin declines it, it'll go to you. But if they take it, you know, that's kind of less money for you. And so it is this, it, it is kind of a, a zero-sum game a little bit, you know, that the earlier you apply, the more likely, the, the larger the pool is for them to give you stuff. I think a zero-sum game is a really nice way to think about it. I've never really put it together like that before. But yeah, the people who apply earlier just... You're giving yourself an advantage that the people who apply later are not going to have. Um, yeah, absolutely. The, I, I would I would kind of say one caveat to that because I, I have kind of a, a kind of a shocking amount of people um, who say you know well I you know who have taken the June whatever um, it, you know haven't done as well as they'd like and kind of think well screw it I'm just going to apply I don't want to retake because you know I want to apply as soon as apps get out. Yes, applying early is great. <laughs> yes, applying early will give you a benefit. But the thing that matters the most, more than basically everything else combined, is your LSAT score. Yeah. And I would say applying, probably going up one point, is worth it. You know, the difference between, I would say, Applying after the December LSAT with a one-point higher LSAT is almost certainly worth it more than applying with a lower LSAT, you know, as the day that apps come out. I think you're probably right on that, but that's not an excuse for waiting for the December LSAT. No, absolutely not. Yes. I mean, because if you take both the September and the December test, you're going to get the highest of those two scores, which is presumably going to be better than if you just wait for the December test. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, if it's just kind of this, oh, well, sh- give, you know, right now, should I aim for September or should I aim for December? Uh, I'm not even, uh, it's not even a real question to me. It's kind of like, you know, and, and we've all kind of said this and, and I think been very strong in our belief that, you know, no, you take September. So... So here's a question for you. I don't really have an answer, and um, I'm just curious what you guys think. What if you're looking at, uh, you've taken it in December, and you're looking at February because you think you can get a higher score, maybe two points higher. At that point, is it better to apply and then tell schools to wait for your score in February? I don't know. I'm just curious because February is so late in the game. That's that's always a tough decision. I mean, there's there's going to always be an edge like that, and I'm not sure either whether to tell people to apply in 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 March or not. I mean, my default is usually no. One reason why I tell people not to apply that late is that people tend to have a, a hard time turning down bad offers. So it's almost like the worst thing that could happen to you is you take the February LSAT, you apply in March and then you get in to some school that is really not a reach school at all for you, and they don't offer you any scholarship money, and then you just say, okay, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to take it. Because that same candidate who's applying in March, potentially even without retaking the LSAT, could just apply on September 1st or whatever the, the beginning of the next cycle is and get really great offers. I think the other thing that we're missing from this discussion is that 
the later you apply, the less time you have to sort of renegotiate scholarship offers. And I don't know about you guys, but this last cycle, I'm still hearing stories from people who applied early, got multiple offers, some with better scholarship offers than others, uh, who then ended up being able to boost their scholarship offers just basically by asking. Is that still what you guys are saying? Absolutely. Um, you know, the negotiation of scholarships, I think, is, is a, kind of a boon for students. Um, and it's absolutely something that people should be doing. You know, it, it's, it's gotten to be kind of such a thing that I've actually started telling people, apply to a bunch of schools. Apply to school, you know, if you really want to go to, you know, Penn, right? If that's kind of your, the school that you really, really want to go to and you have, like, you know, 173.8, you know, apply to UVA as well and NYU, um, you know, and Michigan, right? Because one of them may really love you and want to throw you 60,000 for whatever reason, you know? And Penn might accept you, but might think, eh, whatever, we could take or leave this person, right? If you can look at what, if you can take one of those peer schools and go to Penn, and I'm using this example because I have a kid who did this, um, you know, she basically... Um, got fifteen thou from UVA, uh, or I'm sorry, fifteen thou from Penn. Uh, you know, seventy five thou from UVA, and went to Penn and was like, "Look, UVA gave me seventy five thou. Um, will you match it?" And they said yes. You know, and before she had gotten the scholarship from UVA, she went to Penn and was like, "Look, you know, I'm really worried about money. I'm from from West Virginia. You know, like I'm really poor. Like, will you, you know, can you up the scholarship at all?" And they were like, "No." We don't care. She brought UVA scholarship to them. That's $60,000. It's like kind of crazy. Yeah, a lot of schools have formal matching scholarship programs, right? Like I know Berkeley does. Uh, They'll evaluate one competing scholarship offer, and that that competing scholarship offer, the way I understand it, has to be from another top 14 school. So if Berkeley really is your number one... um, you might consider applying to all the other schools in the top 14 just I mean, absolutely. fishing for scholarship offers. Yeah, I think you always want to apply to uh, peer schools um, yeah. you know, for kind of the scholarship thing. I, I th- it sounds like we all agree on this, and I would just add to clarify, and I th- correct me if you guys disagree, but I would say even if you're sure that you don't want to go to those schools, apply to them because you can use them as leverage. I, I mean, to me, it's Absolutely. worth the cost. Yeah, and the other thing is you can sometimes get uh, fee waivers for the applications anyway. I had a student yeah. last cycle who applied to 30 schools, and I believe she got uh, fee waivers from something like 27 of them. And basically, she just asked. She had a yeah. memo that was like five different reasons why I should qualify for a fee waiver, and uh, she sent that out to 30 schools, and you know, 27 schools found a reason to say yes. Uh, yes, well, you can apply for free. Schools generally want people to apply, you know? Right. Um, and so even, you don't even need the five things. You know, if you can come up with it, great. If you can give them a reason, you know, more of a reason to say yes, great. But, you know, honestly, I just, I tell basically all my students this, you know, every school that you're planning on applying to, shoot them an email and ask them for a fee waiver. You know, I think that students are not really used to this kind of a relationship with schools because um, they're used to kind of being super powerless and, you know, not having any leverage. 
But law school right now is not at all like that. Um, and students actually have a lot more leverage than they think they do um, it, because of how much each individual student impacts the school's ranking. You know, and so absolutely, um, it, you know, students should be emailing and just asking for uh, fee waivers. You know, I generally tell people to do that to honestly just every school that they're planning on applying to. Nathan, did you know any of the reasons she gave? I'm just curious. I'm sure other people might be as well. Yeah, it was like, um, in fact, there's a blog post about it, which I can put into the show notes um, that she wrote. But it was essentially, um, I'm a teacher. Even if you just say, money is going to be important to me, that is a reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah. you would include that in your brief. You know, you're going you're gonna to ask, you're going to show five different ways that you might be able to win your case. And one of them is just, hey, money's tight. But mm-hmm. another one is, uh, I'm a teacher. Another one is, I used to do Teach for America. Another one is, she actually showed them her LSAT score in advance before she took the LSAT. She said, I've taken 10 practice tests and my average LSAT score is XYZ. Mm, and mm-hmm. a lot of them, I think that's a reason why they, oh shit, this, she's scoring 169, we better let her apply. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I would actually encourage people to add their numbers. Um, yeah. Well, if their numbers are good. Right. Um, you know, because, because honestly, you know, and even if their numbers are kind of uh, a little bit below, you know, because uh, honestly, it costs the school next to nothing uh, for a student to apply. It's basically just kind of a cash cow for them. Um, but, you know, the more students apply and the less percentage of those students who they let in, that is a factor in their ranking. Right. Yeah, it looks and good. So, and so they love, you know, kind of all of these people to apply who they mm. then reject. Um, you know, I mean, I remember when I was applying, you know, I got fee waivers for, and I was applying in a boom year, in a boom year um, you know, where heaps of people applied. You know, but I got fee waivers from a couple places that then, you know, didn't let me in. Um, you know, so they definitely kind of throw it around. Yeah, it is a game, unfortunately. Um, it is absolutely a game. So, you know, but I mean, it, it is a kind of unfortunate, but it is also, um, what that means is that if you kind of have the social capital, if you kind of figure out the knowledge, you can essentially manipulate that game for your own advantage. Yeah, um, I, I would say it's a good thing, Nathan. Isn't that kind of like life? Life is a game, maybe. Sure. I mean, I think <laughs> I think you can then, though, there's also sort of social justice reasons why the game right. is really not that fair, you know. Oh, um, that's Who true. is social capital and who doesn't. Um, that's right. Is okay. <laughs> massively kind of tied to wealth. Um, yeah, you know, I, I kind of absolutely agree. Um, it, you know, the one thing that I would say is that Kind of the game as a zero-sum game and kind of students competing against students I find kind of pretty problematic. But the game as students having more power over law schools, uh, which I think is um, more the case than it has been in a very long time, um, is something that I'm kind of favorable to. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the game exists, but so, so people need to learn how to play it. I mean... The, yeah. I guess the entire test is kind of the same way. I feel the same way about it, where I have, there are times when I, I think that, you know, wow, what I just said to these students is really useful. And, um, boy, what, 
I, I just I can't imagine walking into the test and taking it without knowing what I just taught these people. So these people have been benefited by having either the money or the wherewithal to take a class, <laughs> money and or the, the, the knowledge that you should take a class. Those people then just right. walk into the test with a bit of an unfair advantage. So yeah. that, I guess that's morally the hard part for me, is that there's times when I wish the test would not be subject to some of the, some of the tips that I'm able to teach, because I feel like it, it's like people just can pay $1,000 and then now they're better at the LSAT, which is, to me, I mean, it's good for my business, but I'm not sure that's good for the world. I think kind of, I mean, that is actually something that I struggle with a lot. I mean, I went to school kind of to do public interest, to kind of, you know, save the world and all that kind of shit. Um, you know, and I think kind of the, one of the ways that at least kind of on a personal level that I kind of deal with that um, is that the way that I teach is very, very non-tip based. It is very kind of focused on actually improving people's critical thinking. That is to say, teaching them kind of a very, very valuable skill, right? Um, and a skill that is very useful. And yes, it is still kind of unfair because it is the people who can pay for it versus the people who can't and et cetera, et cetera. But it's not kind of this, oh, well, I'm teaching people this kind of, this bullshit. This just, uh, you know, these tricks, these things that are essentially just useless that people who have the money can kind of afford to do and people who don't, you know, can't. Yeah, but let right? me give you an example of where somewhere that I'm sure you don't do. I mean, we, we all do teach some of the tips. And so an example would be this. Hey, didn't finish the section? Uh, you're going to go ahead and bubble in a bubble for every question you didn't get to, right? And that's something right. that is not, I don't think, like presented. It's not, you know, it's not like yeah. the, the proctor is telling them that on the day of the test. Right. No, it's not universal because the SAT is different. You know, right. and, and that's kind of what people's prior experience is. Um, I don't know what the ACT, whether the ACT is the same thing, but the SAT, you know, you get dinged if you, uh, you know, answer something incorrectly. So right. It's kind of better to leave it blank. Yeah. So I mean, I don't. I'm sure you guys have to tell your classes that, right? First, or your your tutoring yeah. students. First test they take. A lot of times they don't bubble in all the bubbles. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, I I agree. Um, you know, that there are these things that, you know, kind of create a huge difference in the test. But It's a topic that I think I would like to explore more down the road. I mean, I've, I've done a bit of pro bono stuff with uh, giving away scholarships for diversity purposes and that kind of stuff and you know, having a sliding scale. I think mm -hmm. you guys probably do similar things, but maybe a future... Um, episode on that topic would yeah. be Yeah, I mean, because that, that's kind of going to be a whole kind of huge expanding thing. Um, and yeah, I've actually done scholarships as well, um, you know, kind of for, for the past two years, actually. Um, you know, if, if, you, if you do end up doing that on a podcast and want to invite me back, um, that is definitely a, a, you know, a topic that I'm very interested in because, you know, again, I, that's kind of what I went to school for. Um, you know, my parents are actually both public interest lawyers as well, uh, or they were. Um, you know, and, and kind of that's a little bit in my blood. So great. Well, we'll uh, we'll we'll get there. Um, what would you guys say if someone asked you just how much time they need to prepare for the LSAT? 
So I, I would say probably about three to four months. Um, you know, but honestly, it's really going to depend on the person. Um, it, you know, it, it's going to depend on kind of building on what I was saying before. You know, college is supposed to build all these critical thinking skills, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, and now I'm kind of building on top of them. Well, how many critical thinking skills are they kind of starting with? Um, you know, that being said, um, you know, of course, I'm, I'm assuming that someone asked me this and I didn't know them at all. I would say three to four months. Three to four but, months will capture, what, 95% of, of everybody? Yeah, probably. It would capture the bulk of people, at least. Okay, so three to four months, that gives us plenty of time if we start now to prepare for the test uh, in the very end of September. Um, Larkin, do you have a few tips that you'd like to offer for people who are going to shoot for that September test? You know, uh, probably I would say, um, you know, start now. Start as soon as possible. That's a really good one. Do, thanks. Uh, do your homework. Uh, Find resources that work for you, you know. Um, there are a lot of resources out there. Use them. You are not going to be able to come up with the things that the test is testing on your own. Formal logic is incredibly difficult and was created by people who are far smarter than you. Like Aristotle um, and kind of the logical positivists and et cetera, et cetera. You're not going to come up with it on your own. Um, that is to say, use the resources that are out there. There are a lot of really, really good ones. Um, you know, at the very least, kind of go out and buy books. Um, you know, talk to people, go on forums. Uh, you know, take a class, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, um, don't just kind of say, "Oh, well, I'm just going to do a bunch of practice tests and figure it all out." <laughs> um, because it will just make it significantly harder. Yeah, so. I, I would I would add to that that there are some blog bloggers out there who have said, "Hey, look, I sat down and I took a bunch of tests and I did it in three weeks and I got a one eighty or a one seventy eight or whatever." I, and there's no reason to doubt that those stories are true, but it's such the exception to the rule that I think it's misleading. I think a lot of people read that and they say, "Oh, okay, this is what I'm going to do." And then they start taking, they go back to test one or test 10 or something, and they start taking the test every day, and nothing really, I mean, their score changes. It does go up as they start to see the, get familiar with the test. But this idea that you can take it all the way or that you're developing good habits as opposed to actually things that are bad, they might be getting you a couple points now, but not really helping you in the long run, I think is much more likely the case when people pursue that path. So I... I think we agree on that, but just to want to point that out because those those blog posts are pretty popular. I mean, people seem to talk about them a lot. I think. Yeah, I, I would say absolutely, and I would also say that I think that uh, it is likely that a lot of those people who just kind of rocked in and did, did very very well, and I actually have some students who have done that, had insanely good educations, and I do not have any student uh, who has started. You know, who, uh, all of my students whose diags have been above a 170, um, basically went to Harvard or Yale or Amherst. You know, like, these kids have amazing educations. 
And that is a big reason why they're able to do that. Not because they just had some crazy natural ability, but because they were actually taught this stuff, but they were taught it in school. So I guess I'd, I'll disagree with that last point just a little bit. Um, because I, just, I know that I'm an anomaly. I mean, I'm not saying I have a bad education, but um, I was a terrible student who like, never went to class. So I didn't really learn a whole lot at UC Davis, I don't think. Um, but the test is a test of ability to, to some extent. Or I, maybe it's not a test of ability, but ability goes a long way. And um, so I, I think that what students need to remember is that you take a diagnostic and you start with whatever you score you start with. Some of your competitors are going to start with a higher score than you started with. And that could be because they have a really great education, or it could be just because they really liked to read a lot when they were a little kid and therefore have a strong command of the English language. So I'm not saying that everybody is going to benefit from that, obviously, but uh, there, there are people out there who are going to have an easier road of it than you. The, the fortunate thing for students is that the test also is a test of how hard you can work because yeah. there are 70-plus practice tests out there, and they really don't hide the ball a lot uh, if you do all those practice tests or if you do a lot of those practice tests. And if you review them properly, then you are going to get there. I think, Ben, you're, you're saying don't do test after test after test on your own, or don't do test after yes. test after test without reviewing them. Yes, yes, exactly. In, in three weeks or whatever, you know, they read these blog posts and they say, oh, that's what I'm going to do and I'm going to get a 180. But I'm saying go get, go get advice, whether that's from a book or a class. It's just going to make your, your, the time that you put into it so much more effective. I, I think those are... And I think that those people who did that probably actually would have... <laughs> spent even less time or taken fewer tests if they had sought out advice, even though for them it was naturally, you know, an easier thing for them to pick up. Yeah, I, t I totally agree with that, too. I mean, even for people who do have a higher, better education or just sort of higher reading ability for whatever reason, definitely can still benefit from having a partner, uh, whether that's a book or a tutor or... I just had a study partner. I mean, I had a, a friend that we met once a week and reviewed tests with each other. Mm -hmm. um, as long as we were reviewing, I, th I felt like we were both learning. Yeah. But the repeated tests doesn't work. And Ben, I, I like your point about not starting with test number one. I, I think that's <laughs> really smart. Yeah. Um, what do we think is an is a adequate number of tests? I mean, I, I think I usually say something like 10 at the minimum probably more like 20. That sounds about right. I mean, in class, we do eight live ones, and then people take home another 10 or so, so somewhere around there. Um, and then there's other questions they're doing like to target specific things, so I don't know how many tests that actually adds up to, but it's somewhere around 20 to 30, somewhere in that range, if you add in the, the homework. Larkin, you about the yeah. same? Yeah, I would say probably about the same. So when you say a test, do you mean kind of sit down a full diagnostic, or you mean kind of how many tests should you go through all of the questions of? Um, well, the way I teach is solely based around 35-minute timed sections. So the first thing that you're always going to do is do a 35-minute timed section. 
then you can take all the time you want to review those questions. So I feel like right, if, okay. a student, if a student does that process through for 20 tests, they're going to be, I mean, almost always, they're going to be within, let's say, five points of where they could get via unlimited studying. Right. Um, yeah, you know, I, I would probably say about that number. I mean, definitely at least 10. Um, you know, and yeah, I would say, um, you know, closer to kind of 20 or 25. So I want to uh, wrap up. Larkin, can you please tell the listeners how uh, they can get in touch with you if they have questions or anything? Um, yeah, so uh, they can, um, you know, if they want to see more information about me um, or kind of uh, explanation of how I teach, uh, you can go to my website, 180degreeslsat.com, um, 180degreeslsat.com. Uh, um, you can also shoot me an email, um, basically uh, larkin at 180degreeslsat.com. And, um, you know, yeah, all of those methods would be fine. So sounds you know. great. Thanks for coming on, Larkin. Um, we'll definitely yeah. Have thanks you for back. having me. Yeah, we'll have you back yeah. for the uh, discussion about uh, LSAT morality. Uh, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, you know, philosophy. Sounds cool. Philosophy in the LSAT. All right, great. Thanks, well, uh, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. It was great to be here. <laughs>